Hello again. This morning I was so happy to sit with you for three periods and walk. Uh, and while I was walking, I, I was noticing the, the road that you've been walking on all this time. I haven't walked so much on it. Um, and how we start here on sand and gravel, and then it becomes stone, and it goes down, and it turns, and it's flat again, but lower down, and then it goes back up, stone still, and then it becomes gravel again, sand, and the different plants along the road, um, fruit trees, flowers, um, probably little animals that we don't even see, and insects that were crushing or flying by. Um, and I thought, oh, it reminded me of leaving tomorrow. Uh, because tomorrow we will all go on to a different path. Um, we will either walk out the gate and walk down to the train station or get in a car and go out the gate down and then onto the highway, um, get in the train, take the train to wherever you change, and then, because I hear you have to change, there's no direct trains anywhere. Um, get off the train, maybe in Lisbon or Porto, get on the metro, um, drive in the car, stop for gas, uh, me, go to the airport, get on an airplane, all these different aspects of our path that will be manifesting, that we will experience, just like this path walking out here, uh, changes. And how probably when we're walking on this path, we're not thinking about it so much in those terms, the same way that we think about when we will take the path to return to our homes, uh, except that maybe we don't, in extreme heat, we don't like walking up the hill. Um, maybe the people are walking too fast or too slow. We maybe have ideas about how we should be walking. Um, yet, period after period, day after day, we just do it. Uh, sometimes we walk inside, sometimes we walk outside. When we walk here, it's very different. When we walk here in this room, it's very different than the room out there, than the hall out there. Uh, the people sleeping in the tents, it's very different walking to their rooms than it is for those of us staying in the building, walking to our rooms, the people in the bungalows, they have to walk outside <coughs> and up the hill and farther. Uh, 
um, we each have our path that we follow. Now, like I said, we have a tendency to want our path to be a certain way. We don't want to walk uphill. We don't want to walk in the heat. We don't want to walk indoors. Uh, we have our preferences. And maybe we're thinking, oh no, tomorrow I have to go back to home and I have to do this and I have to see my family, I have to see my partner, uh, I have to face the bills to pay, whatever it is that we're dreading going back to. Or just the general activity, cooking again, right? Probably the cooks are looking forward to not <laughs> But the rest of us, we have this luxury of having people prepare food for us. Tomorrow, we'll have to prepare our own food again. And we may have to prepare food for other people as well. Unless we're continuing on our holidays and then we will be doing something else. But it won't be, we will have to order our food and decide what we want and where we will eat it. Whereas here, we didn't have to think about any of that. And this, so part of coming to a Zen retreat, and everyone came here for different reasons. <clears throat> um, some people, this is their, you know, they're really little, but this is their life practice, and they are deep Zen practitioners, and they come here to practice to do this. Other people came for the first time, no idea, just thought it might be a nice idea to come to a meditation retreat, um, check it out. Uh, <laughs> um, found whatever they found. Um, and yet, what we all shared was this t being here together and doing this all together. <coughs> As I pointed out about the eating, when, when one person is still eating, we are all still eating. Um, when we walk, we're all walking, taking one step together. When we sit, we're sitting here together. And part of the endless routine of these rituals and these forms, it helps us to, the first step is we see, we see the differences, right? We arrive here and we're full of our differences. All these people, who are these people? <laughs> and figuring out their names and um, we don't even know really what they do in life, where they come from. Some, we might know some of them. Who are these people? And yet we see them as being very different than us. And they're dressed differently, and they walk differently, and they talk differently, and all the differences. Where we came from, what we were thinking about, what we brought with us, um, what our expectations are, all these endless differences. And that's really the first step on this path that we say of Zen or Buddhism, is really Seeing clearly the differences. Seeing things, you know, okay, that's a woman, that's a man, that's an older person, that's a younger person in our relative terms, um, that's a Portuguese person, that's a French person. Um, all these different differences. 
um, people here for the first time, people not here for the first time, people uh, talking more than others, people not talking, all this stuff, differences. But then little by little, without realizing it, like, like I say, walking in a field in the morning that's wet with the dew, we start to get wet with the non-differences, just what we're sharing, just what we all doing it together, all being one. And in the circle yesterday, I think it was very palpable for all of us that everyone was saying something different, but as, as we experienced, we could have said the same thing. We, we could share what they were saying. The differences were almost non-existent, except that what was being said was unique. But if we opened our hearts and just let ourselves receive it, then it, just, it was just what it was. It wasn't anything ex extraordinary. And yet it was so extraordinary because it was just unique to that person. At the same time, someone even said it. I could have said everything that was said in one way or another. I could completely resonate with what was being said. Maybe not the specific story, but the heart that was experiencing it, I could share. The specific story was very particular to each person who spoke it. But the heart that was speaking it and the heart that was receiving it was one. And that, that is what is particular about this practice of just sitting minute after minute, hour after hour, day after day, is that it helps us to experience what we call the, instead of our separate self, to experience the no self or the one self, that we, we are all one, that's the unity of that we look at, and that's the whole point, to, if there's a point, it's to experience the oneness of the world. Um, and each of, this, each of us, it's to our own degree, you know? We each have our own uh, level of experience, our level of uh, of understanding, um, our own way which is part of the irony is that in order to to experience what I'm this what I'm saying, um, in order to experience who you truly are, you have to completely detach from who you think you are. So you have to pull away from all the stuff you think you are, all the. I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm unemployed, I'm, I'm a writer, I'm a, a waitress, I'm a teacher, I'm a scientist, I'm an artist, I'm a um, technician, uh, I'm retired. All the stuff, all the identities we have, little by little, we have to 
pull away from those, see that those are roles we fill, you know, like an actor who steps on stage and performs those roles. But that's not who that actor truly is. And the same is for us. So, we, of course, we have all these activities that we are engaged in and all these roles that we fill and these positions that we hold, which are necessary in our world. When we sit like this, though, we've, we pull back from those. Already, as soon as we arrive here, nobody knows what any of those roles are. We have, I have no idea what most of you do when you are out there in the world, unless we talked about it when I met you, right? Um, I don't know your family names. I don't know your age, really. Um, and yet, I can deeply connect with you. And we connect on that place where we are not all those things we think we are. Because that's what we, that's, that's the, the no self is where we connect. Um, and the irony is that we have to let go of the self we think we are in order to experience who we truly are, which is, let's say, original self, true self, no self, original face, who, who we are before all of that stuff. Um, sometimes we call this Mu, sometimes we call this original true nature, Buddha nature, um, a lot of different ways to express it. Um, my Dharma name, as someone said, is Tu es cela, which means you are that. Um, so, and that's an old, ancient, ancient Vedantic name that pre precedes Buddhism. This is ancient India, the Upanishads, Tuvesala. So this is not a Buddhist teaching per se, and yet the Buddhist teachings point to that same thing. Christ pointed to the same thing. All spiritual traditions point to that same thing. You are that. Um, <coughs> So, so this sounds very mysterious, um, and yet it's not really, you know, it's, uh, so if we, we look at it like, okay, so we came here and we were all really engaged in who we, who we are in the worldly world, and then we sat down here, and after a while, of course, we're still engaged with our stories, but that, all that stuff out there kind of, fiddles away, crumbles away a bit. And even for a glimpse, maybe. And you can just connect with, okay, I'm just sitting here. Um, and the other people, okay, we can just receive them and um, we just do what we do together. We clean the floor or we peel the apples or we, we sit here or we walk together. Um, and then, it, it, at that moment, we're all the same. We're all on the same level. We're all, there's no hierarchy. Of course, we are different ages and different nationalities and whatever, but actually there's all that hierarchy, all those differences are kind of blurred. How, how would you translate the word occult into English? Occulte. 
Quelque chose occulte, quelque chose d'autre. Position and the age groups and the nationalities and the different languages and everything covers, conceals, conceals maybe um, who we truly are. And little by little, as we sat here, that kind of is eliminated. It doesn't disappear, but the veil is lifted, maybe if we say it's being concealed. The veil that covers up all of, that covers up who we truly are. It's this like, you know, it's like a curtain full of all these kind of designs and flowers and colors and, um, and we miss, we miss, we can't see really who we truly are. One of the Zen masters in America, the Japanese Zen masters, in San Francisco in the 1960s, which was flowers and hippies and music and freedom and uh, flowing robes and colors, um, long hair and big beards and things. Um, he asked his students at some point, the ones who were really devoted, he asked them to become monks, shave their heads, wear black robes. And so one of them asks, a student asked him, why are you asking us to do this? And he said, because when you have all your colorful clothing and beads and hair and flowers and beards and uh, all of that, I can't see the difference between you. <laughs> but when you shave your heads and you wear black robes, I can see who each of you truly is. Funny, isn't it? <laughs> we would think it's the exact opposite. We put so much effort into, effort into looking different, into um, having distinctive objects or clothing. Or, and and there's, uh, there's nothing wrong with it. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And as long as we can see what it is, you know, as long as we're not caught by that and limiting ourselves by that, uh, we all have our own style. And that's beautiful, that's rich, to each have our own style. It becomes limiting when we hang on to it and are not free to, okay, do something else. You know, when you go to a business meeting, you have dress differently than when you are at home by the swimming pool. Or, right, when you go to the swimming pool, you don't wear the same clothes you wear when you go to your office. Or when you uh, go to bed, you either wear pajamas or nothing or a t-shirt or something different than what you wear when you get up and go out into the world. So can we not be limited by these images of who we are and see them as just, okay, this is what is appropriate in this moment. This is my style. I feel comfortable this way. But that's not who... It's really, I am not that, actually. Um, 
So then, of course, that comes to, well, what am I then? Right? And that's, that's what we're doing here, right? So um, we have to let go of those attachments to who we think we are and our styles and our you know, appearances and our appearance in the world and our way of being in order to see who we truly are. Um, so the, the reason I'm saying all this is because as we think about leaving tomorrow, um, <coughs> you know, we will change clothes. I will be very happy to stop wearing the same clothes that I've been wearing every single day for since Sunday, you know. Um, and you know, all that I could bring in my suitcase, you know. Um, we will change clothes. Uh, and we will do something different. We won't be sitting here all day together like this in this room. Um, and we may have some anxiety about that, thinking ahead to, oh, what's it going to be like out there? Um, how am I going to deal with this? Uh, I have to go shopping and buy food and, ugh, and all this stuff that's going to happen. And I feel like I will lose all this quiet and calm that I am experiencing here. Or maybe not. You know, you may be thinking, oof, this is great. Get out of here. <laughs> I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and yet, retreat and daily life is not two. It's just another activity. It's just another, it's like the path out there is stone in one spot and gravel in another. It goes downhill and it goes uphill. Same thing, your path goes out there, out the gate, and takes you somewhere else. It's not, it's different, but it's one. And what makes it one is you, and your, who you truly are, goes wherever you are. And you're always here. You know, we can't, I don't mean in this room, but wherever you are is here for you. That's here. You're always here. It's like the Bernie Glassman who I talked about yesterday, the other day. I was at a meeting. It was like a conference, like a public conference talk he was giving. And someone, some woman you know, asked a question about you know, I feel so often that I'm not present and I, you know, I don't know what to do. What can you tell me? And, and he said, okay, um, whoever is not present, raise your hand. <laughs> <laughs> well, there were some people who raised their hand. <laughs> and we, can, we, end, we know why. Because you don't feel like you're present. You are. You're really here right now you're here but you may not feel like you're really here you may not feel really present um, you may be thinking about other things you may feel divided you may be, be um, not understanding what's being said or uncomfortable in the chair or um, worried about something that happened right before you came or something but you are here you really are here <coughs> 
And wherever you are, you are there. You are here, always. Um, in, in French and in English and in Portuguese, we have these words here and there. You know, we have these two different words. Um, and probably even German as well. I don't know. Is there like here and there? Yeah. Um, because that's how our relative world functions. Um, and the, the poet writer, American poet writer Gertrude Stein, has this amazing phrase that has been so misunderstood. But she was talking about her home city, which is Oakland, California. And she said, when you get there, you see that there's no there there. And people always interpret that as her saying, it's a terrible place. It's not worth going there. There's nothing to see. But what she was really saying is, when you get where there is, there is no there because it's here. So wherever you go is here. It's not there. That, that term there is a relative term. But if we can truly experience here, then wherever we are is here. Not this room, um, not the hallway, not the place out there where Manuel has been sitting. Um, but Manuel has been sitting here too. We've all been sitting here, wherever we are, here. Uh, we've tried to bring Manuel's here closer to our here, um, and we were all grateful for him. <laughs> For accepting to have his here, not with this here, but it was with this here, because it's always here. There is nowhere else to be. Um, so the the great Master Dogen, our great ancestor, talks a lot about this stuff, and he 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 formulates it always by an, an affirmative statement. So he'll say, you know, mountains are mountains. Um, we could say, I am me, um, you are you. Uh, this is inside, that's outside. This is downstairs, that's upstairs. Um, the children are children, the adults are adults. Women are women, you know, all of that kind of stuff. That's the first step, you know, discriminating. And then he, Dogen, always gives a negative of that. Mountains are not mountains. Um, there is not there, like he said. Um, there is no woman, there is no man, there is no high, there is no low, there is no upstairs, downstairs, inside, outside. That's when we experience this oneness is just, of course, we know we go inside and out, but we see that that's just a relative fabrication. We put a wall there and say that's outside, but actually it's not, it's only inside and outside because we built a wall there. Um, and the, the path only goes up and down because that's our terminology for it. It's actually just the path, following the terrain, the, 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 the earth. It's not 
it's not up or down, but we call that up and down, let's say. But when we're walking it, we're not necessarily thinking of it as up and down. It's just what we're following. So that, so that, that second step is kind of a denial of the differences. We can think of it as like, no differences. Everything is one. Everything is as it is. But then, and then Dogen comes to a third step, which is another affirmative, but it's actually a negation of the negation. So it's a negation of that second period position. So it's positive. And in that place, he says, mountains are mountains. Um, there are women, men, tall, short. Um, there's retreat, there's home life, there's noise, there's quiet. He comes back to it. But it's different because we've experienced the absence of those differences. So then, like I said, we can really appreciate, like we did in the circle, because we went so deeply into not judging, sitting here. We do the circle towards the end of the week because we've been sitting here, letting go of so much, even without realizing it. That then we can really just receive the things as different without judging them. We can receive what someone says, we can receive someone's laughter, someone's tears, um, someone's joy, someone's pain. We can receive it all just without judging it. Uh, and that's when we say things as they are, seeing things as they are. So it's first we have to discriminate uh, in order to function in this world. So we go out there into our, we realize we're going home, we have to go back to work, we have to see a doctor, we have to go on a family vacation or whatever you're doing tomorrow. Um, we have to have a train for the ticket, a plane, a ticket for the train. Um, I have to have a passport to get on the airplane. Um, okay, we see all. We have to see all that to function in the world. And yet, we can truly function freely in the world if we have seen the intermediary space of no differences. Um, so when we go out there, everyday life is just like the retreat. <coughs> it doesn't have the same rules, the same rituals, the same uh, people, uh, the same schedule, but it's not different. It's different without being different. So you just go out there and you do what you need to do. And it may be easier in the first day or so because you still are stable in this all that you've sat with. And, and by putting things down, it becomes you become really much more clear and stable. Calm, we might say. But then, of course, little by little, that will change. But can you bring your same true self to whatever you do when you're not feeling calm, uh, when you're not feeling stable. Can you return to what doesn't change? And that's who you truly are. Um, your true nature, as we say. Um, 
and see everything that you're doing out there, just like when you're peeling the apples for your own breakfast at home, it's like peeling the apples here. Um, when you are waking up, I'm amazed how I can wake up at 6.30 and be here at 7. It's like, at home I can never do that. It's like, what? It only takes me 20 minutes to do everything and get up and you know, have a cup of tea and be somewhere. Um, so that's different, it's different. And yet, can we bring our same attention, our own um, care, the same care, the same attention, the same um, intention? Can I bring my intention to my daily activities that I have here? Although maybe we haven't, you haven't clarified what your intention is, but there was some intention was to come here and sit. When you come into, you enter this room, you have this intention to sit there for 30 minutes or 40 minutes. And you have the intention to go out there and walk. Um, can you bring the same intention? Not that it's to sit, but my intention is to go and go to the supermarket and buy the food I need. Um, my intention is to get on the train and ride back and take the metro. Um, whatever it is. I've said this many, many times at the end of retreat, because I was at a retreat when the teacher of my teacher said this. Someone asked the question. It's all been so easy and wonderful here. People generally get along. They're kind. You know, people are cleaning and cooking for us, and it's, just, it's so easy here. Tomorrow I have to go home and there's my wife and the insurance payment and my kids and what can I do? And the teacher said, my teacher's teacher said, if you don't want to leave the retreat, don't enter the retreat. <laughs> and he didn't mean don't come to the retreat. He didn't mean stay home, don't even come here. He meant don't make that difference between retreat and daily life. So as soon as we enter into this is something completely different, it is something completely different. But as long as we hold on to this is completely different, then we're lost in daily life because the practice, what we call the practice, is every moment in everything we do. It's not just sitting here on the cushion and eating an orioki and cleaning someone else's toilet. It's actually getting up from your cushion, going to work, cleaning your own toilet, um, maybe struggling with your partner who doesn't want to clean the toilet, um, or doesn't clean it like you want him to clean it, or her to clean it, and all of this stuff. That's practice too. That's practice too. There's nothing that isn't practice. That's the, the radicalism of Zen. 
you know, I hesitate even to call Zen Buddhism, although I know it's a school, it's officially it's a school of Buddhism, but it doesn't even hold on to Buddhism. It's radical in that it's, you can't define it. There's nothing that's not Zen. And yet we can't really pinpoint what is Zen. Um, It's it's maybe the ultimate, uh, well, it's radical in our world today because it goes against everything that the general society is telling us to do, which is to obtain, accomplish, consume, um, gain fame and fortune and celebrity, um, put your image forward, uh, present to the world how you want to appear, even if it's not true. Um, and then everyone else feels shitty because their life doesn't look like yours does. Um, that's what our culture is telling us to do. And yet, this practice is telling us don't even bother with all that. <laughs> Because what, you, what really can free you to be infinitely creative and free and yourself is to let go of that. It doesn't mean you have to withdraw from having a career and having a family and owning a house and um, if, you know, being excellent at what you do. It's not saying that. But it, what it is, is that really delving into this practice, or any spiritual practice that takes you to the heart of being, will transform everything else you do, and make it even more creative, and even more free. And um, whether it is teaching mathematics, or... Um, working in a bar, or um, being retired, uh, whether it is being at home with family, or um, being a militant for, against, uh, protesting against uh, oil companies, or, um, being pro-feminist, or whatever it is, you know, whatever it is, you will be infinitely more creative and infinitely more engaged if you let go of everything that is binding you, which is basically your attachments to who you think you are, and um, identities, and positions, and and wanting to always be in retreat, or never be in retreat, or wanting to not have that family, not want that house. I mean, maybe you do have to let go of that family in that house. I don't know, but um, you will see more clearly if you just sit down and put things down for a while, like you've done here.
And everything I'm telling you, <clears throat> I have found references that tell me this, but it's my own experience. I, I came to this practice, I was wanting to share my experience, and it, this so happened to be the practice I came to. And when I started reading things and experiencing other people and my, hearing my teacher, it was just my own experience already. So I'm not telling you something that I studied and learned in a book. Um, this is, I'm sharing with you my experience. Which again is the beauty of Zen, the beauty of Buddhism is that. We all have to experience it for ourselves, and it's just someone telling you what they experienced. Or, you know, all of the sutras, all these great, you know, the canon, the whole thing, they always start with, thus I heard. So, I heard this, and it was the Buddha who was saying what he had experienced. So, the guy who was repeating it, saying, thus I have heard, he heard the Buddha say that, and the Buddha was telling his own experience. Um, the guy we call the Buddha, but he was a human being. He was a man just like all the rest of us. And he just shared his experience. And he had a very gifted way of sharing it um, and had a very deep experience that had meaning for many, many people and still does today. <clears throat> but the only reason it has meaning is because then we experience it for ourselves. Uh, if it was just something written in a book, okay. You know, it's very different to read um, to read a play or to go experience it performed. Very, very different. And then for the actors, it's very different to read the play and then perform the role. Um, or it's, it's very different to, uh, you know, I grew up in the middle of the United States, north in the middle, very far from the ocean. And when I was growing up, you know, America is a huge, huge, big, big continent, you know. On family vacations, we never went to the ocean. We went to the mountains, we went to the forests and the woods, and visit family in other states, and visit my father with a big history and architecture uh, adept, and so we visited architecture and battlefields and historic <laughs> monuments and things like that. Never went to the ocean. The first time I saw the ocean, I was 15 years old. I tell you, <laughs> for, for you in Portugal, you cannot imagine what it is to see the ocean for the Which first time. Pacific Atlantic. The Atlantic. Consciously. What? Consciously. Yeah. I mean, you can't imagine. <clears throat> or maybe you can, but I, I tell you, if you have never seen it and you're 15 years old, of course, I'd read about it, I'd seen pictures of it. I had seen movies with the ocean and stories and, you know, but 
to see it, experience it, is was overwhelming. Overwhelming. And it was at night. I was with some friends who I went to visit. We lived on the coast, on the east coast of the United States. And it was night, and we were 15, and we hitchhiked to get there. And, you know, we thought we were really cool. And we came up over in the dunes. I think on, on the Portuguese coast, there's some places like that too. Yeah. <clears throat> and okay, I, first we could hear it. <laughs> I thought, what is this? <laughs> and it's dark. Yeah. What is this? And roaring sound, you know. And we came up over the dunes and wow. Just, I think probably. Probably one of my first experiences of you know, emptiness, maybe, or something. Uh, limitlessness, I don't know. And I was so overwhelmed. And even now it brings tears to my eyes. But because I was 15, and I was with my friends, and you know, peer pressure, I didn't want them to think. I didn't want them to know. I was kind of, you know, I'm cool. <laughs> this is good. Yeah. Or I had that kind of role in the group where I was the writer. I always had my notebook and I was always writing things. But I was the one who always knew, and, yeah, let's do this. Yeah, this is cool. And whatever. So I, I, I hid it. I didn't let them see it. To this day, I regret that. However, I did experience it. And that's how I can tell you, experiencing it is not the same thing as reading about it, seeing it. You all know from other things you've experienced, truly. Um, <coughs> even if you came to a Zen retreat for the first time, it's not anything like you thought. Well, maybe some of it is, but it's really your experience is not what you thought it would be. Even those of us who have been here many times, it's not what we thought it would be. Can we stay open? Can we allow ourselves to be touched? I did when I was 15. I allowed myself. It was so overwhelming that I could not not be touched. But 15-year-old and who I was, I hid it. I didn't let anyone else see that I'd been touched. But I was touched. And... Can you let yourself be touched? Can you let yourself be um, open to be touched by who you truly are, who the others truly are, what each moment brings? Each moment is like that, seeing the ocean for the first time, coming to it new, fresh, beginner. Beginner, that's what we call beginner's mind. So when we go out there, out that gate tomorrow, let yourself still be touched. Let yourself um, let yourself be you. Trust your heart. Follow your heart. Uh, even.
even though, you know, everyone is telling you not to do that. And I don't mean the people here, but the rest of the world out there generally is telling us not to do that. Or the messages we receive. Of course, there are plenty of other possibilities out there. But the general consensus is, you know, <coughs> post your vacation on Instagram or Facebook. <laughs> um, climb the career ladder. Um, get a really nice car. <coughs> or you know, a really nice bike. This bike I have isn't really good enough. I need a better one. Um, appreciate I, the teacher who brought the, our lineage to the West always said, appreciate your life. Appreciate your life. Appreciate each moment. It's precious, it's precious, and it doesn't last. Um, this moment is already gone. As soon as we say this moment, it's already another moment. It's that fleeting. As you see, as those of you who have older children like I do, I mean, I remember so well when they were like Joaquin and when they were like Maru and when they were like Olivia. I remember it so well. They don't. <laughs> but I do, and I kind of sometimes think, wow, how did we get, I know how we got from there to here, but it just, it really, it goes so quickly. Not quick in the same way we usually think, but, um, and the same is true for us. When I look at the pictures of wildflower in the first years, the first summer retreat we did, where Jose Eduardo was there, um, in 2007, I look at those pictures. We look so young, <laughs> and yet I don't think of him as looking old or me as looking old. But when I look at those pictures, I'm like, "Whoa, we were so young." Um, and the path has been beautiful, and is beautiful, and every moment has been beautiful. Can we really appreciate it and enjoy it? Not enjoy it in a, appreciate it, I guess, because we don't always enjoy it, but appreciate it for what it is. Like we did when people were talking yesterday. Just appreciate what, being, what is being said, even if we felt sadness or grief or joy, or just appreciate it for whatever it is. When we go out there, it's not easy. Shogyam Trungpa, the great Tibetan teacher, said um, to his students in the 60s and 70s in the United States, he said, what you're trying to do is so much harder than what all of us Tibetan monks tried to do or are doing. We had it so easy. Our culture was completely focused on this. We, when we were little boys, we went into monasteries. Um, we, we were just completely immersed in these teachings and in this way of living. And it was, there were no distractions, or limited distractions, kind of like a retreat. What you're trying to do is like, do that. But it's the equivalent of doing that in the middle of the freeway 
<laughs> it's so much harder what you're trying to do. And that is true. At the same time, we make it hard, even harder by creating all the differences we create. By saying, oh yeah, monk in monastery, mother in house. I was a mother with two children, and I lived in the equivalent of a Zen monastery, a Zen community, for seven years with my children and my partner. And the reason that I did that is because I wanted to see the non-difference, the not different. Of course, I could see the difference. I, and I went to my job every day. Of course, I, but what I learned, what I experienced was I went through the, through the not difference to the, it's just as it is. When I'm working at work, when I'm changing my child's diaper, I'm changing my child's diaper. <clears throat> when I'm sitting in meditation, I'm sitting in meditation. It's just what it is. And I, brought this, I tried to bring the same attention to each of those things. So, we've done a lot of talking. The servers are getting up. Let's hear what you have to say. Okay. <laughs> Questions? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah? So, regarding the um, enjoying the moment, appreciating the moment. Uh, before coming to this retreat, I was at my place with my sister and my nephews and they are um, 16 and 12 and so my nephew starts to smoking and they are pretty much addicted to TikTok and series and whatever and so we were trying to break through that and have together moments or moments without just doing that, them doing that or so, or me talking about him, about smoking or other stuff. And, and his answer it's, was one that we hear often, which is, yeah, I'm, I'm young, I want to enjoy life. <laughs> life is short and I'd rather just live even a shorter one if it comes to disease or whatever. But to really live it and appreciate it fully, then whatever. And I could not answer. I could not, <laughs> I, not knowing. I was I was caught on that. Like, how can I talk with him to distinguish? Uh, because what you wanted when you say a moment without it, it was like have a meal without them looking at their phones, or like, uh, what was the. So this particular context was more in uh, talking about smoking and going into drugs or okay. activities that could not be so good. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can all relate to this. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember there was a track of Lil Yang, which goes like, this is better to burn out and fading away. And this was a very famous track in the 70s. Maybe you could uh, let your... <laughs> Essentially, it's based on the, on the... It was Neil Yang, who was a sort of a personal hero for some time. So, the track goes like this, it's better to burn out than fading away. 
and that was dedicated to the gang of the Sex Pistols, in fact, that died when he was 25 or so. And that was a very common experience. Well, nowadays it's still the same. There were a lot of people that really burned out on Jane Joplin, the guy off the doors, because they really wanted to, to live like that. So I'm not answering, but what I'm saying is that there are people who have this drive, that this drive to burn out and fading away. I, don't think I think it's, it's not, no, I was going to say it's not really a good answer, uh, but uh, it's not, let's say, a dilemma that is well phrased because the idea was that if you burn out, if you don't burn out, you just don't live a nice life, which I think is wrong. But when we are young, of course, you know, we perhaps can't think so. But anyway, it's, it's an interesting track. To there isn't to. enough information from our ancestors. They didn't know how to do things. And the children didn't know how to do things. And so they choose to burn out, uh, not knowing that they will be old and they will suffer the consequences of those burnouts. Well, I was going to say that I don't think Neil Young today would say that. <laughs> because he's what? He's like 70 something. And, you know, uh, Pete Townsend also, you know, I hope I die before I get old. The who, you know. Um, was the, that remark coming from the 12-year-old or the 16-year-old? No, no, 16. 16. Go, smoke your 12. <laughs> 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 I have the same question. <laughs> um, uh, just very quickly. Uh, coincidentally, I actually saw a well, you are talking about uh, Jim Morrison and Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and go go away, uh, go out as a beautiful corpse and all these things, and you have all this fascina fascination about these mm -hmm. idols. But they were my friends, mm -hmm. and I saw them all die. They were my goddamn friends. He was not happy about it mm -hmm. that much. Mm -hmm. uh, interesting to see him speaking now in, the, in these yeah. days about about this culture of burnout and excess. And the other thing I'd like to say is um, uh, something very interesting. And uh, actually, João Sensei also, I had an exchange with him about this. About this. What's uh, beneath that? Uh, recognize that there may be this drive for something. Maybe what? Can be a drive for escape, can be a drive for freedom. Well, and I think I was going to say something like that to to Schwam, that it's going to uh, be curiosity as well. Curiosity, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and if we can introduce, uh, you know, introduce to young to our children, um, because it is a challenge for them. This is a difficult world for them, yeah. you know, with all of these possibilities. Um, you know, if we can introduce them to other things, not that they don't, they should never do TikTok, but, you know, or that they should never smoke cigarettes, but introduce them to, well, what, you know, other possibilities that of not smoking, of what it is, to, you know, if they see their parents smoking or, 
even just, you know, how do they, how does it make them feel? Now, of course, it's an image thing, usually smoking cigarettes. Drugs then too, you know, what is, so do you really want to escape? Um, because that's usually what it is, it's to, or distraction. It can be a spiritual path, but usually at that age it's not. You know, they're not, it's not uh, a quest for the meaning of life or something, or, you know, it's not in a controlled environment where it's used for that. So can we introduce them to other possibilities? Um, I just want to say that, uh, of course, it's not a, an easy situation, but maybe uh, there is a, a, an information that can help to accept and comprehend what, uh, or what is going on. Uh, teenagers, in terms of uh, cerebral development, uh, uh, it's different. They don't have uh, our uh, ability to think in the consequences of long, uh, uh, long term. term. Long term. Mm -hmm. They just it's it's they are not guilty. It's a biological thing. Thing yes. They, you are a psychologist. Eh? He's a psychologist. Oh, sorry. <laughs> 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 but, I, I, I'm not a psychologist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but so it, it's true. Uh, can we see each of it? You know, a child experiences the world differently than a teenager, and a teenager different than a young adult, and a young adult different than someone in middle age, and someone in middle age different than someone who is seventy, and someone who is seventy different than someone who's a hundred. So, can we appreciate the differences and yet try to? Inter that's what I was trying to say about introducing, you know, so uh, present the world and experiences of the world and love and uh, the paths that people lead um, in a way that can speak to those different places and not expect a teenager to think like someone who's 100. I know my mother who's 93, I, she doesn't think like I do. I mean, I'm, and I'm an adult woman, uh, but she has a different way of experiencing the world at 93. Um, but it's true, those things are toxic, and there is the danger of, uh, that's all the more reason for us to be attentive to the different ages and the different possibilities. I had friends who died too, uh, young, from drugs. And, oh, shit. Yeah. Can what? be very different. The the ocean can yeah. be very dangerous. Absolutely, yeah. Surfing, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Cliff diving, or you know, ocean. Yeah. Ocean. Ah, Skateboarding. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's a... mm. but if we live thinking that everything our kids are doing is dangerous, well, then that's also a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Dangerous. Well, I still have them. The question that. Jean addressed here, what, what to answer, what to say, because I don't know if in, in that exactly moment you, you all of that come to you in that so clear way that you can say something to have something to that young. Well, I think it depends on the context and the, the situation and the relationship we have with the 
if the person, it's different for a teacher to say something to a student, to, to a kid, you know, that's in their class, or for a grandparent to say something to a child, or to a mother to say something to a child, or to an uncle to say something. It's, it, it's, it's, it really depends, yeah. Isn't it, uh, when you're a teenager, isn't it exactly the moment you pass the door? And you, you have to tell them exactly what we heard before. Take care. Everything is important. Mm -hmm. But you will experiment, experiment this by yourself. And you are very precious. And every moment is very precious. And if they hear that, and they know that it's true, you know, that they, it's coming from the heart of whoever is telling them that. So they probably do it anyway. Maybe. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> but they may have no one to stop, or, um, you know, thinking of the people I know who went too far. Um, they didn't have anyone telling them that. I've taught teenagers for a long time, and once I got into this practice, I, not under the name Zen, of course, because France is a very secular country, but we counted our breath and did communal in another way. Mm -hmm. loved it. And my school was a place where some people were afraid to go. It was a very tough neighborhood. They were into it. And then when we were kind of an experimental school, the inspector came and said, I want to talk to the students about their favorite activity. We called it concentration. We didn't call it um, meditation. What's your favorite activity? And they all said that, they, that was what they liked best. What? Ils ont dit qu'ils aimaient mieux leur activité préférée était cette, ce qu'elles appelaient la concentration, pas la méditation. The other day we were talking, I think in our uh, society there's not rituals of passage. Mm -hmm. and, and I think Missing. all of us need, but especially the teenagers. Mm -hmm. Most of the traditional uh, cultures have, and we don't have it. And we have a very interesting experience, Alvin and I, because uh, our <coughs> son is going to be 18 next week and he he has gone through a really really tough time with the covid and got to start to smoke to sell and we were really worried and uh and last summer he was invited to do a, a ritual a shamanic ritual we were dancing the whole night it was a mm. long dance it was several things but i think that was like the wow shift a shift it was a shift after that, we started. Oh, can I? Can you borrow that book of meditation and this and that? <laughs> and now he wanted to go to a vipassana retreat on on his 18th anniversary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's still a teenager. He's still irritating. He's still doing all these things. <laughs> but something shifted, and and I feel it was this. He had an opportunity to live something different. To live something. Of course, it needs the boundaries. We were really tough on him about the consequences of drugs. So I think it's a lot of factors. But I'm very keen on creating uh, or supporting uh, 
passage, rituals of passage for oh. teenagers. Right, with, with like consciously, because like smoking a cigarette is often a rite of passage. Mm. You know, kids said, okay, yeah, that's it. have you tried it yet? Or you know, smoking a joint, have you tried it yet? Getting the mobile phone. What? Getting the mobile phone. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, there are there kind of these rites of passage, but not consciously formulated to, like you say, in a spiritual way or something. Can I, can I also say something? I was thinking about Jerome because I'm also an uncle. Um, and I was sort of thinking that, you know, maybe, maybe sometimes it's much easier said than done. It's about applying, I, in what I understood that Amy was talking about, this sort of, which, which I've sort of come to understand in my life, but intellectually, through phenomenology and through certain sort of schools of thought, they tell you about abolishing distinctions, you know, inside, outside, here and there, you know. How can you sort of think when experiencing the world on these distinctions, when you abolish these distinctions, right? Um, you know, I'm sort of thinking that, I think sometimes in those moments with a teenager or something, it's about, of course we know that we're older and we're supposed to know best and we're supposed to be responsible and we, you know, we can't encourage them to do drugs. But maybe in the conversation we can also create a moment of abolishing distinctions, you know, where we can just ask them questions. Oh, why do you want to do that? Oh, what do you think you're going to get from that? Oh, that's interesting. Oh, do you get that from any other experience? Oh, you never got that experience. Oh, do you know somebody who got that experience? So what do they feel like, you know? And you, you're almost talking as if you were at the same level with no mm -hmm. hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean the conversation ends there. By the end of it, you have to say, I'm still your uncle. <laughs> so there's nothing <laughs> with you doing drugs. But, but you've created a moment of meditation where those distinctions were temporarily abolished. Mm -hmm. um, and I also want to say something very quickly, which is, um, it was, I was very touched by your talk today because I've sort of, I said it's my first one week retreat and I've set myself to write text and read the text about my experience here today at the party. And of course, me being me, I was writing the text <coughs> up to 2 a.m. And that's why I've missed today in the morning. I was absent for a few hours because I, I just I got here at 7. I did the, the first sitting and then I was just fainting. I was, There's no medication that can cure this. I need to go back to bed. But I was writing it up until 2 a.m. And me being me, sort of judging, and this isn't good enough. <laughs> sort of thinking that there's not enough punchlines. People are not going to laugh. It's a party. You know, so all those voices. Um, and then eventually somebody gave me a cigarette. I'm not going to name them. <laughs> and that was very helpful. And then I sort of went back to my room and finished writing. And then I've noticed that my experience has all, has all been about abolishing distinctions, you know, and it's there in the text. I'm not going to spoil it or well, give spoilers. Yeah. But, you know, but it's, uh, but it's something as simple as sitting here during the week in the Zendo and sort of noticing that I do have a choice of what's happening inside of me. Sometimes I can contemplate, but also sometimes I can influence that contemplation. And I have the choice of understanding, focusing on my physical sensations, counting my breaths, focusing on the sounds outside, listening to the crickets and the birds and the symphony between the crickets and the birds and the train and the man who's always doing, you know, some <laughs> kind of woodwork. Um, and, and when I choose to go there, the walls of the Zendo become immaterial. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Mm. Can I just say yeah. small thing? Uh, um, it's about this uh, that you, um, some people, and you mentioned about the possibilities. 
it, it's because the phrase that uh, Jay Edward uh, spoke about, it's, um, it's better to burn up than fade away. Then the next phrase that Neil Young says, it's when you're out of the blue and into the black. You know, it's, it's this, yeah. these possibilities, the blue, I'm, I'm seeing like this. If you, if you don't have the possibilities, yeah, when you're in the black, yeah, you go there. Yeah. Yep. I think it's time. Thank you all. Thank you. Wonderful. Shall we do those? Yeah, okay, let's do those four rounds.